Well, good morning. My name is Michael Coffey. I serve here as the executive pastor. It's good to see all of you here on a wintry day. And for all of you that are home, welcome uh, to services here at BCC. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will be glad in it and forget none of his benefits, which on a day like today include a warm house and a working internet if you're not here in the sanctuary with us. So it's nice to have you here. If you're visiting online or here in the sanctuary with me, um, the senior pastor, Dr. Baker, will be back next week. He's away for a much-needed break this week, but he'll be back next week, and I encourage you to come back and sit under his teaching. Before I get started in today's sermon, I want to do an admin announcement of sorts. If you are at a phase of life, as often happens with folks, you're changing from one career to another in this town, that's pretty common. Or if you've been, say, working at home, uh, you put your career on hold for a few years as like a working mom who now has been working from home for years, uh, raising kids. We always have opportunities for people to have positions here at the church. And so if you go to our website, if you open it up on the first page, you'll see a number of drop-down menus on the opening page. And under uh, resources, if you drop it down, you'll see a link that says we're hiring. And there's like six positions on there right now. If you've uh, sometimes wondered, I wonder what it would be like to work uh, there at BCC. We probably would like very much to work with you. So you might look at that. There's going to be some other ones posted here in the coming weeks. So I'll put that out there, and maybe the Lord's uh, going to have you go look at that website and maybe come and work with us here at one of those positions. Now, if my sermon title is talking about the second most important decision you'll make, the second most important decision, uh, according to Scripture, the second most important decision that... Uh, you can decide in your life, of course, a lot of people immediately will think, well, hold on a minute, what's the first most important decision? And with an audience like this of good Bereans studying the scripture, you already know the answer to that. The most important decision you're ever going to make in this life is to accept the free forgiveness that has been given through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He came, he died for me, for you, to pay the penalty for our sins. It's a gift. I can't work. I can't earn it. But I can accept it as a free gift, and I can have eternal life as a result. That's the most important decision that you're ever going to make. But I want to talk today about what I consider to be the second most important decision that you'll ever make in this life. Before time ever began, the Godhead... The Trinity, the triune God, decided that God was going to place Jesus Christ in the form of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, inside every believer when they made that first most important decision to accept his sacrifice for sin, to be forgiven. He's going to place the Spirit of Christ inside every believer who makes that decision to reside inside your body. Now, that's an incredible truth. That's why I just repeated it. According to the verses that you can see up here, Colossians 2 and Ephesians 3, all the fullness of the deity dwell in Christ. And, ipso facto, if Christ now dwells in you in the form of the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit, then all the fullness of the deity dwells inside 
each and every believer. Wow. That, two incredible truths. I've just shared in less than three minutes with you if you'll try to wrap your mind around what I'm saying there. When Christ lives inside you, he brings every divine resource with him. He has it. All the fullness of the deity dwells in him. He lives inside you. So when you face problems, when you face obstacles, when you face troubles, you face it with a risen, triumphant Lord living inside your body. My goodness, that's three incredible truths I just did in less than three minutes. Think about that. Everything you face, you face with the risen Lord and all the resources of deity residing inside of you. So when God invites you to become involved in his work, as he does, it's a command for us to be about the work of God as believers. He invites you to do that with the resource of his son and his divine power inside of you so that if you'll allow him to, he will carry out the assignments that he has for you in this life through you by his power living through you. Now, those biblical truths that I've just stated and restated should have very significant implications for me, for you, and for every other believer. Because being a disciple of Christ is so much more than just gaining head knowledge or memorizing some scriptures. If that's all it was, then the Pharisees already took first place. They already won. But they didn't win. When you read the pages of scripture, they missed the point. It wasn't just knowledge. It wasn't just gaining familiarity with the word. It wasn't memorizing that. It was letting the spirit of God live through you and take that word through you. They lost. So being a disciple of Christ means that you're choosing to give more and more of your life, moment by moment access of your life, every area of your life to him. Now in this area in Northern Virginia, a lot of military, a lot of State Department folks, a lot of high powered business types and others, your greatest difficulty, I, I know, it's my greatest difficulty, your greatest difficulty is going to be believing that your relationship with Christ is the most important part of your Christian life. Not just how much you know, how many verses you memorize. Your relationship with Christ is the most important part of your Christian life. Your relationship with Christ is paramount to what type of disciple you are. You doubt that? Look at the life of Christ says that when he picked his disciples, he picked them. And the reason it gave was so that they might be with him. While he's doing ministry and people are bringing little children to be blessed by the Lord and the disciples are trying to shoo them away, he rebukes the disciples and said, no, let the little children come to me. Such is the kingdom of God. And he lays his hands on them and he blesses them. When he's doing his ministry and he stops by the house of a friend, Lazarus, with Martha and Mary there, and he's teaching, Mary chooses to sit at his feet. Martha is in there prepping for all the company that's following Jesus around because he's there, and she comes in there and wants the Lord basically to rebuke Mary and tell her to get up and come in here and help me, but he won't. He says, no, she's made the right choice. She's sitting here. It's more important than anything you're doing in there. She's made the right choice 
choice. When Peter, who denied Christ three times in a very tense night, something you've probably not done, you've probably not denied Christ three times like he did, is being restored by Christ, he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? Not, well, you ready to finally get serious about this? You ready to really put your shoulder to the wheel? You want to try a little harder this next time? No. Do you love me? So I repeat, your relationship with Christ is paramount to what type of disciple you will be in this life. Now let me ask you a few questions here. If you're wondering how you're doing in this following of Christ, in this second most important decision. When others watch you face a crisis, do they see Jesus Christ through you responding to that crisis? Does your own family notice the difference that Christ makes when you face a problem or a need? Does the indwelling of Christ with all divine resources, does it really make any tangible difference at all in how you live your day-to-day -day life? God reveals himself, and he wants to reveal himself, and he wants to work his plan in your life. He wants to work his ministry through your life. He wants your family to see Christ being displayed by your life and your actions and your words day by day. He wants to express his love to a lost and a dying world through you. There is such a difference between living the Christian life, which usually has an undertone of somehow I'm trying to gut this out the best I can, versus allowing Christ to live his life through me. Now, they say that uh, confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. But here goes. For centuries, the church has been raising what I call Galatian Christians. And by that, I mean, you look at the book of Galatians in the New Testament. Here was a church. Here were people who were saved and forgiven just like you. They believed that Christ died for them. They believed that it was a free gift and all they had to do was accept the pardon that he offered them. They were just like you. But then they were troubled by some false teachers that came in and said, well, yeah, you were saved like that, but now you've got to keep the law. Now you've got to basically try to be good. Now you've got to just sort of gut out the Christian life as best you can, which, of course, just guaranteed failure kept those Christians ineffective, guilt-ridden, frustrated, the way so many Christians still live today because the church has not been very good at teaching the second most important truth. So how does a Christian become filled with the Spirit? How does one walk in the Spirit day by day, moment by moment, yielding more and more of your life to Him? It is a command. Ephesians 5.18, I've put it with a couple of different versions up here. And he draws a contrast to that. But it's a brilliant contrast that the Apostle Paul draws here. He's like, do not get drunk with wine, which is a choice. In order to get drunk, you have to choose to keep having another drink, unless maybe you're a 98-pound woman or something like that. You have to choose to have another shot before you start getting drunk. It is a choice, just like being filled with the Spirit. 
is a choice. And then as you keep having shots, then it starts to permeate. It starts to control your mind, your speech, your coordination. It has this permeating effect, has this controlling effect. So it's a choice, just like being filled with the Spirit. And then it's supposed to have a controlling, permeating effect. It's a brilliant illustration that Paul uses there. I like the way that the Berean Study Bible has it there. And I put the word continually in brackets because in the Greek, that's what the command is. I want you to be continually filled with the Spirit. That's what it literally says as a command. Moment by moment, continually filled with the Spirit. I don't want you to get drunk with wine. I don't want you to just keep taking shots. I don't want you to get wasted, which leads to reckless indiscretion. Instead, I want you to be continually filled with the Spirit. It's an excellent, excellent illustration of the fact that it's involving a choice that you make. And then with that choice, the influence, the permeating control that comes as a result of that choice that you make. Now... It must be important to him. He made it a command here. On the night that he was going to be betrayed, and he's having his final supper with his disciples, this is the last teaching that he gives to them before he dies. That if you abide in me, my word abides in you, then you'll bear much fruit. He's teaching about the spirit-filled life as the very last thing he teaches to his disciples before he goes to the cross. That's how important it is to him. Let me ask a question. Has anyone lived their life on earth besides Jesus Christ? Has anyone ever lived their life on earth without committing a single sin? No. Only Christ. Only he could do it. He's the only one who's ever lived a life of victory over sin and temptation. So why like modern-day Galatians, why do we think we have any hope of doing that ourselves and our own resources? We have none. I love the fact that when he had accusers sometimes trying to trip him up, at one point in John chapter 8, verse 46, he just asked them a question. Which of you can convict me of sin? Because he never sinned. He was so led and controlled by the Spirit. Which of you can convict me of sin? It's interesting. All the years I've been witnessing to people about the Lord as they sometimes give me pushback and stuff, I've never once stopped and said, well, let me ask you a question. Which of you can convict me of sin? I mean, it's not even in my repertoire to ask such a question. You don't have to hang around me very much to know I sin daily, all the time, every day. But he didn't. And the beauty of the thing is that he is saying, I'm willing to live the life I lived through you, if you'll allow me to do that. Only one person has ever done it. Only one person ever will. But he is now willing to live his life through me, through you, through every believer in the world. So practically speaking, how are we filled with the Spirit? How do we live in the victorious power of moment-by-moment spirit-filled life. Well, I'm going to put a few illustrations up here. And, you know, you go to an art museum, a picture is worth a thousand words, but the same picture doesn't speak to you as it does to your buddy or whatever. You like a Picasso, he likes a Rembrandt, you like a Turner, whatever. 
Whichever one of these resonates with you so that you walk out of here today with an understanding of what it means to be filled with the Spirit moment by moment, giving access to your life, giving control to your life, letting the Spirit of Christ permeate your life, you know, take it today. The first one over here shows some grapes connected to the vine. That's what Christ was teaching on his final night, as I said, there in the upper room, <clears throat> that I'm the true vine, you're the branches, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, in the Greek, the word nothing means nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing of any spiritual significance. You can live your whole life and never accomplish a single thing of any spiritual significance. Who wants that? But apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, if that speaks to you, take that learn from it stay connected with him let his word be permeating throughout you second thing here is a <clears throat> game boy controller sort of thing i i like that jake uh, put that there when he made the slide and uh, whenever i saw it at first i was like what is that and then he told me i thought that's great that's perfect because it's the idea of who's controlling your life paul says in galatians 2 that even though I used to be a Hebrew of Hebrews, I was a hot shot among the Jews. I was a leader as a Pharisee. That's all rubbish now. And now the life I live, I live yielded. I let him control my life like that hand control that you see there. We talked about the command to be filled with the spirit out of Ephesians 5. The picture of the sailboat there is it. And that goes along with the picture of the spirit that Christ was teaching to Nicodemus in John 3 that the, it's like the wind. You don't know where the wind comes from. You don't know where it goes. It's invisible, but you can see the effect of it when it comes. And so it's a picture of a sailboat here. And that's actually the phrase that's kind of being used there in Ephesians 5. It's the idea of being filled with the spirit is like a sail being filled with wind so that unless you've got that sailboat anchored or moored it cannot help but move action will follow when the wind fills the sail it is an inevitability that it will take off the wind becomes a dominating a permeating influence on that boat it's a choice that the person makes just like in Ephesians 5, that I choose to have the Spirit move through my life. I love the fact that there's kind of a corollary verse, almost a synonym verse in Colossians 3.16 that says, let the word of Christ, who was the true word, John chapter 1, he was the word of God, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. That's what we're talking about. Not just reside in you, but richly dwell in you, permeate, control, influence you. We could have just put the interior of our car, but because at BCC we try to increase our cool factor, we put a race car interior in here uh, for you. But you get the point. Whether it's a pilot of a plane or a spacecraft or a race car, it's at that point a control center that is being operated. The question is who is operating that control center? Who is flying that plane? Who is operating that spacecraft? Who is driving that car? The late Red Ray Stedman in his books, he said the phrase that worked for him is as he would 
try to make sure he was filled with the Spirit moment by moment, he would constantly be saying, Lord, I want all of you. I really want none of me. I just want to get out of the way. I want you to work through me. Who is in control? I was on staff with Campus Crusade for five years of my life, now called Crew. That's where I met my cute brunette wife, Laura. We got married and all, and uh, they had a picture of a throne, which kind of goes along with the same thing. You think of a king sitting on the throne and making the rules and the laws and the dictates as a controlling image. But am I sitting there or am I allowing Christ to sit there? Who is sitting on the throne of my life? It's interesting. Whenever I was on staff there with crew, they had a kind of a concept of the spirit-filled life. They called it spiritual breathing. I didn't really like it very much uh, at the time I was on staff. Used it, of course, but uh, as I've grown older, I really appreciate it now because it's the idea of exhaling the carbon dioxide from your body, inhaling the oxygen. Because if I'm sitting on the throne of my life, if I'm controlling my life, I can guarantee you, sin is not far away. It is an inevitability that sin is about to impact my life once again because I'm controlling my life. But if I confess my sin, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive me my sin. He'll cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so I get up off that throne and ask, Lord Jesus, sit here, control. And that's an act that I do, asking him to take control of my life. So the throne image has grown with me over time, but especially that spiritual breathing. He's not surprised that I sin, that you sin. He sees you positionally as him, flawless in heaven. But relationally, going back to your discipleship, the relationship being the most important part, what he's saying is, go ahead and confess the sin. I'm already aware that you're sinning. I'm already aware you're going to sin every day. Keep short accounts. Confess it. 1 John 1, 9. Let's keep the relationship good. He's already died for my sin, all of them, even the ones I'll commit till the day I go to be with him. But keep the relationship good by simply confessing it. And then in my case, get up from the throne of my life and let him sit there at it. Final one, chocolate milk. Who doesn't like chocolate milk? <laughs> you know? But in the image here, you know, if the glass and the milk is your, you, your body, your soul inside your body, well, when you become a Christian, he says that he gives you the spirit of God. He puts it there. The word he actually uses is he puts it as a down payment for the future glory he's going to give you when he changes you to be like him. But anybody that's a uh, chocolate milk fan, as I am, knows that if you put that syrup in there, it'll go to the bottom, it'll just settle. And it'll just be milk until you get to about the last half inch of it. Until you activate it. And then it starts to permeate. It starts to control the look and the flavor and the taste of the milk. It's a picture. Which one resonates the most with you? Pick one. That's why I put them all up there. They're all good. They're all different images of what it's like to begin to yield control of your life verse by verse. I mean, moment by moment, depending on which verse you're talking about here, 
which one seems to speak to you, take it and learn from it so that you can begin to yield more and more control of your life. Because if you're a Christian who is trying, like the Galatians, to just live the Christian life the best you can, I, I want to be good, I want to do right, I'm, I'm so disappointed that I can't, you're like the man in the illustration I've given, I don't know, a couple of years ago in a sermon I did. It's such a ridiculous illustration, I want to give it again. Because sometimes through the ridiculousness, we finally grasp it. If you're trying to live the Christian life, you've been forgiven freely by Christ, but I'm just trying to gut this out the best way I can, then you're living by your own resources rather than let him live his life through you. And so you're like a man who goes down and buys a car. But he doesn't know that it has a motor. So he goes out and he grabs the bumper and he starts pushing it home. He gets home and he's pretty hot and sweaty. And while he's getting a glass of water and wiping his brow, the wife and the kids pile into the new car all excited. So he goes out there and grabs the bumper again and he starts pushing it along. And then, you know, maybe you come along to him and say, Fred, wow. How do you like your new car? And he goes, oh, this car, this car is tremendous. I mean, look at that upholstery. Look at this color. Beep, beep. Like that horn. That's quite the horn that it's got there. But I really do sometimes find it to be kind of exhausting. I mean, it's okay when I'm pushing it downhill. I really enjoy this car. The wife and kids seem to like it. But if there is the slightest grade incline, it just gets harder and harder for me to do it. Now, going back once again to that confession, being good for the soul, bad for the reputation. The confession is we at the church throughout the century have failed to teach the second most important point. Instead, what we usually would say to Fred is, Fred, Fred, you need help. Let me tell you, come to church with me. We're going to have a number of special meetings all next week just about this. On Monday night, we're going to teach you how to push with your left shoulder. Tuesday night, we're going to teach you how to push with your right shoulder. Wednesday night, we're going to teach you a kind of a really just novel but uh, amazing technique where you actually back up to the car, grab it, walk backwards, work in the quads, but you're really, really starting to gain some strength and some speed by doing it. It seems contradictory that you get some moments further walking backwards, but you do because of the way we're going to teach you to do that. Thursday, we're going to have some committees and some other places. We've got some PowerPoint um, presentations that I think will bring it all together. Friday night, we're going to have a special service where we all come down front and dedicate ourselves again to pushing cars better. That is what the church has been teaching for centuries about this. Whereas, should have been saying, see that key? If you turn that and Fred says, what's that noise? And then you begin to explain there is an engine in there. That's the power source. You don't have to push this. Instead, pull that lever, step on that pedal. You'll find amazing power to go through life in this. That's such a ridiculous illustration until I was prepping for the sermon <laughs> this week. And then I came across the story of a young missionary and you'll see where this is going. Herbert Jackson, who was given a car to help him at work. 
and it was a major asset because he had a lot of distance he had to cover. But it wouldn't start unless it was pushed or jump-started. And so he had this plan. He was near elementary school, and he worked it out with the teachers as the kids could, quote, have some fun every morning as he would go on his rounds to come out and push the car and help him jump-started. Then he would go, and he would drive around. He always made sure that he parked on a hill so he could kick the clutch and jump started uh, once again, or if he couldn't find a hill, he would just leave the car running and just keep the visit short and, and then get back in the car. Two years he did this. And then because of some health reasons, he had to go back to the States. They sent a replacement out there. He's explaining this elaborate system about the car that he's going to bequeath to the guy. The replacement is obviously a little more mechanically minded than Herbert was because he opened up the hood and said, well, you got a loose connection here. He tightened it down. Car starts. Two years. The ridiculous becomes quite real. That is the way so many Christians are trying to live the Christian life rather than let Christ live his life through you, through me. In conclusion, why should we be filled with the Spirit? Jesus was filled with the Spirit before he was ever incarnate, hundreds of years before he came. Book of Isaiah, talking about the Messiah to come. Behold my servant, I will put my spirit upon him. When Jesus started his public ministry, he opened up the scroll there in the synagogue as he was starting his public ministry, and he read from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, to bring the gospel, which means good news, to bring good news to the afflicted and to the poor. We should be filled with the Spirit because Jesus was, because he commands us to be filled with the Spirit. We should be filled with the Spirit because it's what's going to produce Christ-like character. Here's Paul, once again, who said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Nobody could touch me as a Pharisee. I count all that as dung now, and I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live in this body. What you're seeing now is Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Because it is a faith act. If I give up control of my life, Lord, take control of my life. If I get off the throne of my life, Lord, have a seat, drive my life, permeate my life, change my life, live through me. It is a faith act. Need a really good reason to be filled with the Spirit? We need the Spirit to effectively walk in our calling. Galatians 5.16 says, But I tell you, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You feel defeated by sin, temptation, feel like it's a monkey on your back that you can't get rid of? Here's the solution. Walk by the Spirit. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. We need the Spirit to properly share the gospel. Going back to that Isaiah 61, Spirit of the Lord upon Christ as he went around preaching, sharing the good news. Same for his disciples. After he resurrected, he gave them specific instructions that don't just strike out on your own. Acts chapter 1, he tells them, 
You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to the end of the earth. Don't try to do that on your own strength. Do it through the Spirit-filled life. Do it through giving control of your life to the Spirit. Then you'll be amazed at the witness that you can be to a world. We need the Spirit to have victory over the flesh, temptation, and sin. Paul gives a great contrast to this. In Romans 7, when he talks about trying to live the Christian life in your own power, he says, for what I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm not practicing what I would like to do. In fact, I'm doing the very thing I hate. Contrast that when he chooses to let Christ live through him in Galatians 2.20 that we just looked at. The life that I now live, Christ lives through me. Which one has a sense of victory over self? Victory over sin, victory in this life of temptation and trouble. You know, whenever I talk to people about being filled with the Spirit and giving control, letting the Spirit permeate your life, letting it lead you, letting it take control of your life, they'll come back to me after they hear me teach something like this, and it's almost a complaint. It'll be like, Ever since I started trying to do what you're doing, I feel like I'm just always confessing sin. I feel like I'm just always noticing how short I fall. I just feel like I'm always messing up somehow or another. And I'll say, well, how many times a day do you think that you're probably confessing sin there? First John 1, 9, confess your sins and he'll cleanse you and he'll make you right with him relationally. How many times a day do you think you do that? I don't know. I, I bet you I do it at least 30 times a day. Great! When you get to do it about 300 times, you're really growing in this concept. It is a moment-by-moment moment thing. He's not surprised that I sin. He's not surprised that you sin. He sees you, as I said, positionally clean and in him. But right now he's saying, do you love me? Give me more control. Do you trust me? Let me take the lead. You willing to let me drive? That is the moment by moment. Go from 300 to 3,000, I think, oh, you're about ready to go meet the Lord. Because it is a moment by moment walk that we're called to do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you did not leave us to our own puny strength to do what we cannot do. But you have given us your spirit with all divine resources inside of us. May we learn to walk in the spirit. May we learn moment by moment to yield to you so that it can be said that the life that we now live is lived with you living your life through us. I pray it. I ask it. I trust you for it. Amen.